You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is, is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive. She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. Is the water on this planet? What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew? From the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you, the gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. All Things Alice. This podcast will explore the cultural phenomenon of Alice in Wonderland as artistic landmark and global symbol of inspiration and imagination. I'm your host, Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy. Let's explore what is it about Alice? My next guest is a collaborator and is co-writing my latest novel in the Looking Glass Wars universe, David Rosala. He was raised in a literary family and has worked for over a decade developing film, television, and publishing properties for most of the major studios, networks, and publishers. His films have played across the globe, including at prominent venues like the Museum of Modern Art, Sundance, the Berlin Film Festival, and Cannes. And recently, he has co-founded the Permanent Majority PAC, a progressive organization devoted to establishing a permanent majority for the Democratic Party. I'm super excited to have you on the show. Welcome, my friend. I'm super happy to switch this over where I get to ask you questions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because for those of of you who don't know, um, I've been doing some interviews with Frank for a big series of articles that will be coming out soon uh, about the whole history of the Looking Glass Wars. And it's going to be very cool. And everyone who's listening is going to want to read that stuff. And I'm excited to uh, chat with David today because we have been collaborating for many, many years in all sorts of different aspects of the Looking Glass Wars and other projects. But one of the more rewarding parts of our uh, our working together, our collaboration has been this novel uh, of the Hatteram graphic novels. We will 
chat about. But before I go there, I want to do a little um, exploration. I, I'm really curious. I'm, I'm really into father-son stories, and I was quite close with my father, and my father was a big personality, and that that caused me to uh, to need to separate myself from him and go off in my own direction. And I know that your father was a poet and a writer, and I was really curious about your relationship, um, you know, with your dad, especially around writing, like when you were in school, was he write, reading your work or was that too close to home? So no, he was always, uh, my father was, was Vern Rutzala. Um, he's a very well-known poet. Um, he isn't with us anymore, but uh, he wrote, I believe over 20 books of poetry and then additional books of various things. And um, in the world of poetry, he's, he's, you know, he's very famous um, outside the world of poetry, not so much, but yes, he was always uh, like incredibly supportive. Um, I remember I got into writing poetry in grade school and he would like, he would help me type up the poems um, and he would always read my stuff and he was always very supportive. Um, and he would often tell me like after we were, after I was an adult, like where I was stronger than he was, which, you know, is a very supportive thing for somebody to tell you, you know, someone who's that accomplished. Um, and I mean, I think the thing that, you know, but he was leading by example every day because, you know, poetry isn't something where you make tons of money. I mean, it did help him. He was a college professor and it did help him move advance in, you know, in his college. But you have to do it, you know, you have to do it every day. And just seeing that example of the fact that he was living a life, but that he was also, you know, so productive and so committed to something. Um, it, you know, was a powerful lesson to me always. And then, you know, you get into the, the fact, the stuff I learned later, like, um, you know, that he didn't publish a book between, although he was publishing in magazines and periodicals, he didn't publish a book between 1961 and 1975. You know, I talked to him about that later and about how hard that was, you know, to have, cause it wasn't like he wasn't sending books to publishers, you know? how he had, you know, to deal with basically like 15 years where you were not being recognized. When you say it was difficult to um, deal with because your father would be emotional uh, about the rejection of these books and the difficulty of getting somebody to say yes, or that you were just used to, you know, your dad producing these books and being able to look at that as an example and you were confused personally why that doesn't that didn't continue well no because you know after he published that second book he published a book like every couple of years so oh i see so like most of my you know most of my memory of my child is it was of him publishing but like now now you know later when i learned that there was this long period and my mother even told me a story of like one of his books um that he was really, you know, he had a really good feeling about the press that he'd sent it to. And, um, you know, I think he'd had some personal, you know, discussions with the editors there and they just rejected it like with a forum rejection. And he, 
And my mom said he like ran upstairs to like actually to uh, his this room where I'm in now. And and she was she was actually like frightened, like as to how, you know, what, how the how he was taking that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've I, I saw. Yeah. Seeing your your father in a vulnerable state really, you know, really sticks with you because so often, you know, that I rarely saw my dad. He seemed in control all the time. Mm. So uh, that must have been uh, a bit. And my father was, you know, he was, you know, he was an artist and a creative person, but he was also very much of a person of his time, uh, you know, a, a man of his era. I mean, he was somebody who, you know, loved, I mean, he came from a, Unlike my mother, he came from a, a, a working class family in Idaho. And he was the, you know, the Marvel child who, you know, was great at everything, did mm. fantastic in school, um, was an athlete, you know, all of those things. You know, he was valedictorian president of his wow. senior class. Wow. The quarterback of the football team. He was Come so he on, was that. really? He was the yes, quarterback so, of wow that and, is a very you know, unusual combination of a human all yes. those skills <laughs> and my mom you know when she met him in college he had become much more of this artistic like beatnik sort of person and she was shocked when she learned like that he'd had such such a like you know classic american high school experience you know of this you know you know joe high school type uh situation and, but, you know, as an adult, he loved, you know, he watched sports, he liked to drink beer, you know, he was so there, it wasn't like he was that different than my friend's parents, you know, in, in, in many respects, you know, but he also did this thing. And, and so that was, I think that was very powerful to me was that, you know, he could be this, you know, man of his time, but then he had, you know, he worked at night almost exclusively, um, and, you know, that he would sit there at his table and, you know, compose these things and just do, you know, just keep doing that, you know, year after year. Uh, I mean, I believe that on the night he died, um, him and his mom, him and my mom, him and his mom, him and my mom. <laughs> hello. Hello, Sigmund Freud. Um, <laughs> him and my mom were like going over the galleys of his last book. So like, you know like an hour, you know, or so before he died. So he was doing that and that was his life. And I think when you see that, you know, that's just a powerful lesson to you as a child. And and to me going forward, just to know like what it takes, you know, to be a creative person, that it's not like just this glamorous thing, that it's this consistent effort. And he always said, he always said to me like, you know, run your own race. Like that was one of his phrases. Like, you know, it's not about what other people are doing. And that's something I always say to myself, like you're running your own race. Like, don't worry. And what was your first race uh, with writing? Do you recall? Well, I had a, I had an interest, like I wrote, um, you know, I, I was, I also drew a lot. So I drew and wrote for as long as I can remember, you know, and my father also was quite a good artist. So he, he would, you know, he would often draw with me when I was very small. Um, but I mean, I did, I did write like in, I think it was fifth grade. Like I had written like a book, a little book of poems that kind of became like famous at my school. 
because I like they it even led to like parodies of them. Um, what was the because, theme? What was the theme of the um, <clears throat> of the poems? What the were you one that people about? liked the most was this poem I wrote about my dog um, called "Soul of a Dog." And it was, I don't remember the lines, but I do remember what it, what it was about. And it was about the fact that my dog, who was a gigantic collie, like a particularly big, like lassie dog collie, but he was terrified of the mailbox, like the big, you know, US, mm -hmm. like that closing, that sound really. Mm. And so it was about that conflict of like <laughs> this dog that was so big and powerful and a shepherd, you know, in his behavior. And then he was terrified of this thing that to me was completely unfrightening, you know? Oh, that is so sweet. That sounds like an animated short wanting <laughs> yeah. to be made uh, at, at Pixar or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I remember, the, you know, in I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and we have a system called Outdoor School, which is like a camp for every kid. And it's sort of a you you learn about the you know you learn about nature, but it's also basically a camp. You know, you you um, do all the camp stuff. And I remember, and you 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 end up sharing a cabin with kids from all over the city. And I remember, in my cabin, there was like another kid who was a writer, and so it was like his friends like were championing him and my friends were championing me and they thought we'd have this big conflict. Of course we had no, you know, we were happy to like meet another writer. You know, it sounds a bit, uh, uh, uh unrealistically idyllic for a writer <laughs> not to suffer a little bit more. You have a great relationship with your father who is there alongside of you creating uh, your first possible competitor turns out to be a good friend. Has this continued? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, my parents, you know, I mean, my mom was very important in this too, because my mom was really the one who ran the, ran the house, ran the family. You know, she's from new England. She was from new England and she was a very strong personality. Um, and, you know, I had very, I, my parents, like, I didn't realize it growing up because they, uh, they seemed to allow so much, but like comparing my childhood to others, they were pretty strict, particularly my mother about like what I could do and what I couldn't do. For instance, what was something you couldn't do that you found to be strict? Um, well, you know, I grew up in Portland, Oregon, and I'm like a rare person who doesn't ski, right? And that's because my, my mom wouldn't let me go. Oh, she just didn't. She just thought it was too dangerous. Right, right. Well, so that kind of thing. It was mainly that. And there were sometimes like weird things, like although she they were very open about books I read or movies I saw. I remember my mom never wanted me to watch Psycho. And I, I never <laughs> quite and, like even I ended up like seeing it for the first time in high school and my mom still wasn't happy about it. <laughs> it must have scared her. Uh, well, I know. think it scared her. I also think, you know, my mom was like a feminist and i also think the like violence and sex combination was something she didn't think was healthy for especially young people to yeah. be exposed to and, and not the greatest mother uh you know yeah, character also, either <laughs> <laughs> well uh so how when was the transition into television movies that happened very very early and that like it really it really happened. Um, I went to first grade in the States and then we moved to England and I went to second grade in England and it really happened that year. So it was like it was seven and eight. And I, that was when I discovered Doctor Who and Star Trek. 
And those shows like got me interested in filmmaking. I, I discovered that book, The Making of Star Trek. Like one of my cousins had it. And I was like, I like I didn't even think that there was such a thing could exist like a book. And it was, you know, it was like a paperback, but it had like all these photos in the center cool it was pictures sex. yeah of the, yeah it was like 64 and... photographs like which is like, you know books back then often had that like the little photos but this was like a ton of them and just the idea of a whole book devoted to how they made the show you know i mean nowadays we think you know star trek is this big thing but back then it had just recently gone off the air it was just another show right and i didn't like the fandom hadn't really gotten to the point where people recognized that so I was just one person that was getting into it. And it, and while other people really got into wanting to live in that world, I think for me, it was about how they made it, who this person Gene Roddenberry was, who were these writers that wrote it, um, these actors, you know, and I got very interested in what the other actors were, did, did. And many of the episodes were written by science fiction writers. So then I got, that got me into reading their short stories and novels. And did you have friends uh, in England that uh, were into the same thing? Or... Yes, I had a lot of friends that were into that. I had a friend, one of my best friends was from, I was actually from Australia. And we would always argue about, because um, he, I really liked the Jerry Anderson shows too, the puppet, you know, those shows, like the Thunderbirds and no, Stingray. And well, um, there's shows that have lots of like gadgets and, aircraft but the the characters are all played by puppets by oh. Marion Marion puppets uh and he i was into this but my friend robbie was like even more into them we'd always argue about like which was better doctor who or the jerry anderson shows mm. and i would always side with doctor who and he would pick the jerry anderson shows <laughs> and and he also was really into the fact that i was an american because he was also really into the space program and he was always like have you been to cape canaveral <laughs> that's awesome had, you know, like one of the things in england is people do not understand the size of america like they do not get it like to this day like they don't get it <laughs> you know it's, right it's like, like just around like, the well, corner did, can't you just pop over there and i'm like it's you know, it's 3,000 miles away. No, I can't <laughs> pop over there. Well, um, since we're on the topic of childhood um, discoveries, how did you just come to Alice in Wonderland? Or did you? It's, you know, I was thinking about that. And it's so hard for me to, you know, because my, my mother was always like quoting stuff. And she was always quoting Alice in Wonderland and other Lewis Carroll writings. But... I, so it was always around. I do like have a memory of like the first time, I think it was just read to me, mm -hmm. um, you know, like rather than being read to like my siblings and me, you know, that, oh, like, okay. at that time, it was just being read to me. Um, and I remember that, like this opening sections, you know, because I think I had sort of, you know, it's one of those stories you can kind of dip in and out of. So like, if I'd heard it being read to my sister or my brother, you know, I might've heard, but like that opening section is so powerful with her falling down the hole and, you know, drinking the potion. And I just remember being very like blown away by that. Was that something that your parents did on a regular basis that they, uh, they read stories um, to you as a family and or individually? 
Because that's, yeah, that's pretty that interesting. Was something my mo- like, that was something my mother really did. I mean, occasionally my father would, but like that was really my mother. My mother was very theatrical, and so that was something she really liked to do. I mean, she would even read to my father, you know, like in the evening. And from the, not always book, but from the newspaper, like, and he liked that. What was her favorite? Did she have a favorite to act out and be theatrical? Or do you have a, do you recall a childhood favorite that she uh, read to you? I do remember, you know, um, one of my like strong memories is of her reading to me um, Treasure Island. Mm. Um, and I remember like that was very like I could tell it was like a special thing. There's a you know, I don't know if this is still true, but there's there used to be a kind of thing of like, when is the kid ready for Treasure Island? You know, yeah, especially young boys, you know, because it's such a like classic boys adventure story. And I do remember, like, and I didn't know anything about it. I hadn't seen the movie, so, or, you know, at that stage. And, you know, it's just such a magical, like, story, the way it opens. And it's scary. Like, it feels like you're being given a new experience, right? Because it's kind of an adult thing, you know, with, like, the the, the black spot and this, you know, there's scary stuff in there, you know. Yeah, it's like Grimm's, Grimm's fairy tales and uh, and so many other books that were written back then. I, I was a big fan uh, of that, of Treasure Island, because it was scary, but of the adventure aspects. And I remember I was doing an interview with uh, Michael Morpurgo, the uh, the British children's laureate. And, you know, he was giving me a hard time about reimagining Alice in Wonderland, but he finally came around. Uh, but he gave me a word of warning, don't touch Treasure Island. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I'm putting it in space. Come on, give me a break. Um, but of course- They I, did do that, Treasure Planet. Yeah. Oh, they did? Huh. Okay. Well, luckily I didn't work on it too late. So, um, but do you have one that you would, uh, a classic that you ever thought about? Uh, I do, but like one of them is something I'm working on. So I don't you really talk about it. You can't talk about it? it. Oh. Really about it. oh, that's it's too bad. Well, we'll- like it's not at a state it's something i actually it's one of the many things i worked on during the pandemic um because i was one of the things that when that started i was like i'm not coming out of this with nothing accomplished and as you know i like for you i accomplished something quite massive yes massive Um, because that's when i finally finished the book and and it's huge so well let's um, well let's let's just tell them the listeners um you know uh, talk a little bit about that because you just brought it up and uh when you say it's massive it's many many pages so uh uh, you know think game of thrones i mean it's 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 like over a thousand pages so. yeah that it's that's yeah. that's that's an opus so I, and it was the I mean, that's the like you know that's the longest thing i've ever written um easily it, but it wasn't it never felt like that because it was just such a it first off that was like it what was else was going on it was just the best escape well let's get right? set up because what what the where we what this is this okay book well was, it, yeah. originally yeah go frank came, originally frank came to me and he wanted to do something about the hatter m graphic novels because he'd noticed that there were some people who just didn't want to read graphic novels and they loved his novels and he thought maybe we could do something uh we could do just adapt them to basically do novelizations right of graphic novels right. mm-hmm. and 
I think you were thinking about other people and I like lobbied for myself really hard to mm -hmm. do it, mm -hmm. you know, um, and you were not totally convinced originally, <laughs> but like I put, you know, I, and, and I put together uh, an outline uh, for, I think it was at that stage, I think I had it as like maybe three books. And my notion was of at, like, was not just, let's not, I felt like, the Alice energy needed to be in there in some respect. And so I created a new character who was like hunting, hunt, hunting Hatter, uh, who was a teenage Victorian journalist who has her own backstory. And that was basically my addition to the, to, to the structure. And then I found a way to use that to tell all the stories within uh, the graphic novels and add new ones. And I recall you read that and you really liked it, but your your big note, you had many notes, but your big note was it needs Alice. Right. And the minute like you said that, and it wasn't something we'd ever thought about, we'd ever put into words because it was that was what it wasn't, right? Mm -hmm. Like initial conception, it, it, it you know. Um, and I remember when I first talked to you about the Penelope character, I was saying, like, there's going to be a lot of Alice energy here and there. And, like, she'll be sort of an echo over the whole piece. And she's the reporter, right? That's the reporter, yeah. Uh, um, but still, you felt um, like it needed Alice. And, I, and the minute you said it, I knew you were right. And that meant, the one of the really exciting things that meant for me was we could expand... Um, one of the chapters in your in your first book about Alice on the streets of London, because that was my favorite chapter. It was many people's favorite chapters. And also, I skipped over a number of her um, uh, teenage years. Um, mm -hmm. And so I thought, oh, that's a that'd be really interesting to explore what was going on with her. But structurally, the idea that these two people are separated on planet earth and they're slowly inching their way together just made sense and my like simple like one line on it always was hatter searching for alice penelope searching for hatter and alice is searching for herself and that was always like that was the guiding thing i think that's one of the reasons i could write such a long piece was because i always knew what it was about like right. i always knew the motivation of the characters where they like, because when you go off in sort of a, one of these like picaresque style stories, one of the problems is often you lose the thread, right? But the strength of this material that you'd set up was that the thread was so strong that you would never lose it. Right. Because Hatter is looking for Alice, you know, Penelope's a journalist. She's looking for Hatter, you know, mm -hmm. the mysterious, what she doesn't even know he's Hatter for, you know, originally just mm -hmm. this mysterious monster character that, you know, she's, she hears of and, and reads of in, in European papers. Yeah. Well, and, you know, a, a, along with the writing we're because you have um, background in film, um, which I'd like you to talk about, but um, because you have that background of pitching and selling and creating uh, uh, TV and film properties, you know, you have a really strong sense of um, how to position something, how to sell something. And I, I remember 
we were talking about a pitch I was going to do for the Looking Glass Wars, and um, you were helping uh, simplify it. And one of the things that you came up with, and that I had also had very similar language, and it really surprised me, was what people are looking for today in terms of creating a new myth, but not a myth that has to do with um, good and evil, of course that's there, but a myth, a myth about about truth um, versus you know fiction, and um, and to be able to crystallize thematically what these ideas are about and how they're going to find them their their way into pop culture, and I was curious if you learned that skill of positioning it from pitching to Hollywood, um, or had you always seen stories in terms of the way that the story is going to find its way into pop culture? I mean, that's a, like, that's an interesting question. That's something I, like, I'm not entirely sure of. I know, like, there was something in my makeup that always was interested in the development side of, of ideas. And I remember, like, uh, a few years ago, I encountered, like, one of my earliest attempts at writing a screenplay, and I, I was probably 12, and it was only about 10 pages, but it was a biopic about Tutankhamun. And, I, you know, I had done research, and I, but I was impressed by the opening sequence because it showed that I, like, it was about, it, it was set with Tutankhamun at his inauguration. It's kind of like a backstage moment before he's presented to the court. And I was, you know, and it, it's, you know, it's, it's still a youth person's writing but the concept i thought that's a very strong way to start that movie right like that you're you have this child this boy king and you're seeing him at who we know through these like you know beautiful like the sarcophagus and all that stuff right but you're seeing him you know stripped of everything you know and so i must have like on some level that got you know some you know just from watching lots of movies reading lots like some of that inherent like way of positioning a story was clearly in me. Um, and, you know, I mean, I did lots of writing. I, I started making movie like, you know, ki- you know, student films or children, you know, when I was eight. So wow. like uh, my, my best friend who lived across the street from me, uh, his mother was a taught film at the high school, one of the high schools. So she got us like really great, equipment we mm. had lights well like, oh, that's you know, so much my first fun film. yeah and um and it was a you know it was like i would i was really into like detectives it was the 70s right i was like, like there was lots of those detective shows so it was like about ice was the star and i was like the detective and it didn't have much of a story as these things generally don't hmm. but it it you know it was something that i got very excited about and and you know it became you know that became a part of my life that hasn't ended right like i've probably done some kind of film project um every year since i was eight and one of the things i often say to people is like like my life as a child in many respects is not was not that much different than my life is now like i had my projects i was really into like um office supplies so i always had like folders and you know i was i was was that weird little kid you know that and i had friends that were into the same kind of stuff and i remember i like really wanted 
like a manual upright typewriter from like the 40s wow you know? so specific yeah and and there was like you know there was like a used typewriter place like near my house and i would go in there and i would look at the different ones and they were really nice to me you know like because they liked the fact that like such a little kid was into um you know their stuff it's really amusing to me what you're saying because um i think that what a lot of adults lose is that childhood you know curiosity and imagining and it sort of gets you know beaten out of you uh because of the way that life is and to be able to hold on to that and tell stories uh, was one of the big themes that i was thinking about in looking glass wars is um is is the power of imagination how do we hold on to that childhood um imaginings and carry them into life so you can have you know you can be responsible but you can have a lot of joy and you can continue to have vivid stories and have uh vivid creativity um and that's not an easy thing to do for folks no it isn't so, I, I know that one of the like i went back i i quit smoking 13 years ago i guess almost 14 now and I remember I was thinking, like, am I going to be able to write? Because it was sort of like part of my mm -hmm. process. Stick, yeah. So one of the things I thought about was like, well, I always wrote. So just I go back to your inspirations, like when you were eight. And that was like really valuable in ways that I didn't expect, you know, because it reminded me of like how consistent my life had been and and what, you know, my my interests were were always my interests and and it kind of like pushed something as mundane as smoking to the place that it belonged which is just a mundane activity that wasn't healthy and i needed to stop so where do those inspirations to write and tell stories come from or what did you what did you find to reignite the love of creating it got down to really basic stuff. It was like what, like, you know, it was like HP Lovecraft or, mm -hmm. you know, um, Brad Bird. Like it was like the science fiction and comic book. It was just those basic, some of the art. I loved art. You know, I, I did a lot of drawing and painting. So just going back to like looking at Da Vinci, like the things that got me excited about being alive and being a creative person. And even things like getting some of the actual like editions of books that I had from that period, that was, you know, cause that's a kind of a connection. Um, it wasn't that complicated when I started, you know, I mean, it didn't take me a great deal of effort, you know, and I think it was, it ended up being a more powerful experience uh, than the reason I did it initially, you know, because it made me realize, oh, like, this isn't something you like, because part of my brain, I think, said, well, I because I pretty much started writing like daily when I was 22. So oftentimes I drew the line there. And I was like, when I started to go back to eight, I was remembering when I like tried to my first attempts to like write stories and I um, short stories, science fiction, short stories. And I had read in one of those like writers handbooks that they paid by the word. And I remember like counting the words in my notebook mm, okay that's funny it's figuring out how much money you're making yeah i wish it was uh i wish it was that easy um i mean i think there's still some writer jobs that uh you get paid by the word but um no they're, they're actually those magazines still those 
the ones of the you know that still exist uh the magazine of fantasy and science fiction analog and asimov's which came later but they all those still pay by the word you haven't even paid me from last time i haven't watched halo either i'm going to summarize halo season two based on the watching now halo podcast from couch soup this is gonna be fun so chief could be crazy <laughs> cortana's had a facelift we're a bit mixed Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive. She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. There's the water on this planet. What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere. Podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew? Hey, let me ask you, um, since working uh, on the Looking Glass Wars um, and sort of taking this deep dive into Alice in... Um, in Wonderland, have you noticed how much Alice in pop culture there is to draw upon or how often it's referenced? Um, yeah, I mean, that was that was rather stunning to me. Like, I, I would have probably imagined it was strong and present, but I, it just was, it's just everywhere. Like, it, literally, almost a day does not go by when there, I do not encounter a reference to it, you know, and there were so many like like um, down the rabbit hole, like like you hear that almost every day yeah. nowadays because you know it, it's become like people go go down a YouTube rabbit hole, go down a, a internet rabbit, an Instagram rabbit hole, you know, and I don't think they even that's one that's so ingrained in us. I don't think people are even thinking. Alice in Wonderland. It's that it's become that part of our, our yeah. way of looking. Yeah. And it all, it, it, it often morphs. So, you know, in um, the matrix, they turned the liquid into pills. And then I read an article about taking the red pill, which was a whole article about the internet and about mm. how deep that rabbit hole goes um, in terms of, but they were using a matrix invention to talk about Alice in Wonderland that was different. And so it keeps feeding on itself. It's, uh, it's quite, it's quite remarkable. Yeah. And, um, through the looking glass, right. That's another one of those expressions that you hear a lot, but actual direct, uh, you know, um, quotes, references and quotes are just as prevalent. Yeah. Like curious, as these yeah. curiouser themes. and curiouser. I've seen that. That one, know. like, I don't, and a lot of them exactly people don't know, you know, and, one of the articles, like I'm, another article I'm putting together for your site is the, is like the connection, the Star Trek connection. And as I did a little research on that, I discovered that like Alice in Wonderland, the, its use in the original series and in Star Trek Discovery actually makes the Star Trek animated series canon or a section of it canon. So like, that's an amazing thing. And I was going through like one of my early, my old like Star Trek, like reference books from like, and it was right around the time the animated series came out and it even has like an entry for Lewis Carroll. 
Would would you say that um, because you're a fan of uh, Star Trek, that uh, Star Trek using Alice in Wonderland is one of your favorite connections to? I think it is one of my favorites, and 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 of course it's, you know, it's used in such an in so many in in like these specifically different ways that evoke different things, and that's the thing about Alice in Wonderland, you know, that it can be something that's very that's we just are talking about the fantasy right like that it's just a it's one example of a fantasy world Mm -hmm. but then you can look at alice in wonderland as the opposite thing which is it's a way it's you know like great fantasy it's us looking at our world right it's it's a tool to examine our world um and you know i always love that in in oliver stone's jfk when when costner's as jim garrison says we're through the looking glass people black is white and white is black and like you know there it is like and everybody like the, the great thing about that is everybody understand like even if they don't if they're not in you know they're not going oh looking glass alice like they're not doing that in their brain they know that it's a know. shorthand. It's a shorthand. It's a it's it's a vocabulary that we've 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 developed around it, and that's why you don't really recognize it, or you can recognize it so quickly. I really, I mean, I honestly feel like going through this process of working on this material with you, that I would, I think we have to say that it's it's neck, it's up, it's right up there with Shakespeare and the Bible as like the most influential work of literature that like has been wedded so deeply into our culture that we don't even notice it you know well and also it it keeps morphing from decade to decade um in terms of whatever is going on in culture it just takes a different form to represent what's in the forefront right as i said going down a youtube rabbit hole. yeah it's so pliable it's amazing i mean how uh how the longevity of it is is just shocking right and especially when you think you know lewis carroll like originally invents the story just to entertain some children i mean that's basically no no that's not true he invented he did it because um alice hart told him the story don't 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 don't, alice hart told him i'm sorry yeah 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 don't 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 fall into that trap of buying into it fake news (laughs) fake Fake news. I think another aspect of uh, working together is the is the idea of you know creating stories across these multiple platforms, and so you know I hadn't mm-hmm. read a graphic novel. I hadn't I hadn't read I hadn't um, written a graphic novel before, and so you know I, I thought about the graphic novels that I've written and what I might have done differently in terms of the storytelling. Um, but then when we started to collaborate, you know, because I had written uh, novels before, I thought, okay, this is another another aspect of creating n- not necessarily a franchise, even though I'd be very happy to have, you know, a, a franchisable, you know, IP. Um, but how much fun it is to cross-pollinate stories in different mediums and for them to be connected and then extended and then have to write and create within the rules of the new medium. So whether Mm -hmm. you're writing a novel, which you know about, and you also know about writing graphic novels because you wrote some scripts for me. 
Um, mm-hmm. they're, they're, a different, they're a different beast. So can you talk a little bit about the process and the, the, the creative process, you know, when you're writing a novel versus when you're conceptualizing a graphic novel? Um, well, I think a graphic novel is very similar to television or, or, or screenplays in that it's a very compressed form. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can't, like, you have to be more conscious about, like, relaxing into the process and allowing your subconscious to take over because it's such a it's such a a, a demanding uh form from a structural standpoint that almost everything is structure um so where and when writing a novel structure is important it's not as important what's more important is the words itself and scene creation and character creation um so you can so you can have much more of that relaxed creativity um and be much and take on your subconscious i mean i was working with even though your novel that i worked with you on expanded you know in my drafting of it i was working from a fairly tight outline um and so that i always had something to go back to but i didn't have to it wasn't like writing a graphic novel or a screenplay where i was where you're you're almost always thinking uh, of like, oh, this, you know, the thing is, whenever I start a screenplay, I always feel like it's too long. Like I've written a page. It's too long. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah. Like, well, like, do you go past because, 120 pages? Yeah. Well, I mean, but, you know, you already start to lay it out in your mind. And, you know, I mean, that was a thing that I learned fairly early. I read it in a book somewhere. It said, like, most movie scenes are no longer than three pages in the screenplay. And I was like, oh, really? You know, because if you read books, like, often there's, like, eight-page scene, 12-page scene, 25-page scene. So, you you know, you have that feeling. And in a novel, you have much, it's, you know, it's, you have, there's this, it's a very wonderful experience to write a novel, I think, because you have this, thing that you're doing and it's not going to be done for a while right and it's all on it's all on your shoulders uh, you know yeah. in screenwriting you're definitely collaborating in comics you're, you're, and also you're not like that's not the final product right. exactly exactly you know that's it's just a, a that's just a map to make a, yeah. yeah it's a means to make a thing and that's one of the reasons i like it i mean i'm a person who like likes to read uh plays and i know a lot of people don't find them Problem, you know, because they aren't the thing, right? They're a version of a mm-hmm. thing. But, but to me, that's very exciting. I like that feeling of like making it up in my head. And well, I loved plays uh, as well because I was an actor for a short uh, period of time, and I fell in love with the form, which was a reason I was interested in uh, writing at all, um, because I thought it was just a- an amazing ability to tell this story through this dialogue. And, yeah. and nothing else, um, a little bit of stage direction, but, um, but that, very, I mean, many like famous plays, there's almost no, you know, Shakespeare has almost no stage yeah. direction, you know? So, yeah. So, you know, all these different forms are, uh, are, are quite, uh, are quite challenging. I mean, I think, I think, you know, someone who is a hundred percent a novelist may, you know, take exception with what I've said, mm-hmm. but, I'm talking about it from the perspective of someone who's primarily like I've always written fiction, but someone who's primarily been writing, you know, in 
screenplays and and um teleplay type format so like to me in that format the struggle is always to and i use a lot of techniques to keep that subconscious creativity alive um what do you think it is about um about alice in wonderland um that has endured um in culture but not quite endured in film and television in the same way say you know sherlock holmes has been done over and over and reinvented and um you know maybe even the wizard of oz um alice you know i think until the tim burton movie came out i would say that 90 percent of the people or a lot of the people anyway would recognize the disney animated movie but that was from 1945 yeah. i think right yeah other than that i mean there have been other versions there have been television special but you know you're absolutely right um i think i think some of it is just the daunting nature of like going up against disney i mean mm. because we don't have i mean the jungle book had a adaptations before and there's only been a couple like maybe like there was i think one in the 90s you know, um, other than the Disney. And you look at that with Winnie the Pooh, right? Like, I mean, I think that's one they actually own because that's not in public domain. But of the what, material they've done in public domain, you know, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, they, like, not a lot of people have taken it on. I mean, we recently have, you know, uh, Guillermo del Toro taking on Pinocchio. But it's, you know, and a couple of other people have tried that. But it's, it's you know, that's part of it. I think the other thing is, is you're with Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan and things that you're talking about things that I think people saw more naturally as story generators and they saw Alice more as one story. No, that, that's, a, that's a good point. Story generators versus, um, you know, that her story, you know, is episodic and it kind of comes to an end. And where do you go? Uh, I suppose. I mean, we, we, I mean, Wizard of Oz is another one that like, there's multiple books, right? I, I read them all as 13. a kid mm -hmm. and um, we only really have, like, we have like a couple of movies, we have the, you know, the Judy Garland movie. And then there's that, you know, Return to Oz movie from the eighties, but there's, you know, I think there's like an animated patchwork girl maybe, but there's very little for the amount of material there, you know? So I think sometimes you like it's the daunting of going up against this like iconic cinematic version. And some of it is the inherent nature of that, that story. Um, and I, I think to some degree, it's a daunting, it's a dense story, right? It's it's a story where if you actually take the book itself and go, well, how are we going to, you know, like there's a lot in there that you can stage. You know, it's like when you go to the her seat, the sequence where she grows, like you're getting all this stuff about like drugs, like the, all this stuff we have in our heads, you know, because it's such a powerful thing over the years. And then you're going, well, how can we get some of that into this adaptation? Mm -hmm. And I think Tim Burton tried to do that to some degree. Um, but I, I had the same, ex I mean, with Tim Burton's movie and um, the success of that movie, you know, it pushed a lot of people a away from trying a, a new version of Alice or The Looking Glass Wars, especially mm -hmm. with directors, because, oh, Tim Burton's movie made, you know, a uh, billion dollars. And but having done the sequel and having now it's many, many years, years later and seeing other reinventions come out um, and that there's nowhere to go. As you said, there's no story engine to keep driving the Wonderland mythos. 
I think people see that. Right. And to me, that was the most powerful thing almost instantly with your material that I felt. Well, the first thing I felt was like, like, why didn't I come up with this idea? <laughs> like that was, <laughs> I think that was for one of the first things I said to you. You like, did. Yeah, I remember like, that. Yeah. It seems so obvious, like the like the the true story of one. Like it's even like like you can even present it like with that kind of cheesy type, like <laughs> right. You know, Alice in Wonderland, the true story, right? Except you know, to make that to suspend disbelief um, in, in that storytelling, you really have to uh, work with the 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 reality that Lewis Carroll and the books had with the real Alice Little and then play with the the fiction of it. Yeah, and that was an exciting thing that you did. And and that's something that's part of the Alice in Wonderland myth in and of itself, right? So, you know, if you go a little deeper, like you encounter that. Um and so that that's why it was that's why I was jealous was because you were taking on like two levels of the myth at once and then finding a way to tell it a story but then when i looked at it more deeply i'm like oh but you've created this like story engine stuff yeah like that you can keep going back to and now that, that to me was the most impressive thing and and i think i demonstrated in 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 the book we're doing that like it really is like a massive story and like it can just keep going and going you know you know i don't think i realized until i uh my first book the first book was published in the uk and i went to a school event and there was a very eager boy with raising his hand and he wanted to ask me a question and the question was um how come i didn't finish the book and I said, what do you what do you mean? And he said, well, you just did a recap of Hatter's 13 years. He's my favorite character. You should go home and finish those 13 years and include them in the book. And I'm like, how old are you, kid? And uh, and and then I realized on the plane ride home that that was a really strong uh, story engine because it's such a long period of time that they're separated and just started to imagine who are all the people he would have met in our world at the time and mm -hmm. collected the friendships and influenced and, and left a wake of mythology behind him. And, uh, and that's when I realized that this story could be infinite. Um, you know, mm -hmm. when he met, um, when he met President Lincoln or Jules Verne and Jules Verne was inspired to write one of his books because of Hatter, I said, you can kind of do this, you know, mm -hmm. endlessly. And those 13 years on earth are like one of the most important 13 year, you know, cause so much changes, you know, right. the industrial you have revolution. Like, yeah. yeah. You have the industrial revolution taking over the world, you know, at that time. And then you have, you know, astronomy taking off. Like, there's just so much stuff that didn't exist at the beginning. Uh, you know, uh, you know, pistol, revolver pistols. Like, there's just on and on. You know, one of the things I know that when I was doing research, I would always have to, like, double check. Like, does this exist at this time? Right. And, you know, <laughs> and I'd be like, oh, yeah. So I've got to do something, you know. And I told you, like, that one of, I, I was always trying to make sure that, everything in the book fit all the other material that's already out there. Mm -hmm. um, so I was always doing little things to make that work. And I remember like, I discovered that like Budapest did not exist. 
Right. It was Buddha and I, past. I, I, that was my mistake. I I did <laughs> yeah. not do as and, much research as you did. <laughs> and and how so lame. I, I, so, but I I like covered <laughs> oh. your ass because I like put in a line about how like people are already starting to call it Budapest. You so, called me and you busted my ass so yeah. bad. You were like, "Oh, do you want to know one of the many mistakes you've made? <laughs> I'm going to fix for you." <laughs> but it's it's indicative of that period that like it, it, that you know a lot of stuff is changing and so that's another thing that makes um the hatter story so exciting um because he's a catalyst but he's living in a time of catalysts right and a time of imagination and one of my feelings always about your story is it's about uh, it's about recapturing the imagination for our culture yeah um that we have gone we have gone through the 20th century was a century of imagination and the 21st century really hasn't been and in fact it's a it's a it's been a a, a century so far of reversion yeah um, of killing imagination and it really you really feel it in culture um and the need you know to break out of this you know i mean if i use political terms the the, the partisanship and you know the extreme um language that's used it's it's not it's not the uh imaginative way to solve solutions so mm-hmm. so i think it's um you know i had this quote fantasy just declared war on reality and i really never thought it would apply to day to day life and a political mm-hmm. you know leader you know, the idea of the fantasy just declared war in reality. We have been living that for five years. Yeah. And, um, and, and it and it started, remember, I mean, Karl Rove, to get on the political side, I mean, he he talked about like people who lived in the reality based community. Yeah. You know, he was not somebody who lived in the reality based. So, yeah. Um, and for and, and for me, like one of the exciting things about the story is about like seeing that seeing how important that is how like the the destruction of imagination like what it can do to a world um and what just one girl who has this great power of the white imagination what she can do on a positive side for the world and the people that surround her i mean one of the great things in the hatter stories is this thing you invented follow the glow and the glow is basically a an imagine you know it's a it's something that he can see that indicates that some kind of a special mm-hmm. imagination is going on and that idea to me was like uh, what you know was very exciting you know and it was that's another little thing that i'm always that i was always wanted to return to you know and he and hatter i even have a point where like hatter wants to return to that right like what am i doing you know because he's you know he's not always like on top of things right yeah so you know one of the, the, the probably the number one question that people have for me is um why hasn't this been turned into a movie or when is it going to be a TV show? And, you know, I, 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 I try to, you know, let folks know that uh, we have been working on it. Uh, you uh, were invited to the writer's room. I had Ed Dector on uh, as a guest recently. Um, and, you know, when you're in a writer's room, you're really trying to solve, you know, the 
the questions and the problems of what the story presents and how to break it into episodes. In this case, we were trying to do, I think, 10 episodes, eight or 10 episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, uh, as well as I do that trying to catch the zeitgeist of the timing when the business is ready, when the creative is ready, how those come together, you know, the right medium, whether it's film or television in this case, mm-hmm. or maybe a musical, um, any of those three, I think this material would, you know, if, if crafted correctly, would really, would really work. Um, but uh, it's not, it's not so easy to crack the, uh, that uh, timing. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to, like, the problematic thing always about this stuff is everything you just said, but then on top of that, like, you've got to remember why this is special. Right. Right. Like, like, because you can get into situations in a writer's room where you're talking about a third act problem here and like a mid season issue, you know, and you need to occasionally you need to do that thing and step back and it's like why are people watching the show like what Mm -hmm. are what is the reason that we're excited about this why do they tune in each 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 why do they tune in and why you know um i'll pair it you know we all like watch shows where we go what happened in that room like Mm -hmm. you know like that that this is what they came up like they literally had something fantastic right because that's why they got to do a show, right? Like, seriously, people don't like give you money to do a show if you don't have something fantastic. Like, I know people don't understand that because the stuff they see at the end may not be fantastic. Right. But the thing that drives the start of a movie or a television show is a fantastic idea to begin with. And so that's a problem because we're so, you know, those of us who've been around this material are so close. And even if you're not, even if the new thing, just the process of going through it, you know, makes you contemptuous of your own thing. And you have to have that thing of stepping back and and um, looking at what is this magic, you know. And I remember and we've done that for each other throughout the years we've worked together where, like I've said, you know, like you're missing, you know, like get back to the basics. Like, yeah. what is this story about? You mm-hmm. know, and that's something I do in writing in general, like even when I'm writing a scene and I'm stuck. I go, well, what is this scene about? Like, the, she has to walk across the room and get out that door. Like, that's literally what, you know, and sometimes that's true. It's like that simple. And you've turned it into this crazy thing that, you know, and then, you you know, you can simplify it. To that. Yeah. So, you know, and the other part of it also, because I've been on productions and you get the studio notes is there's sometimes a chipping away at the, at the core idea that you don't mm-hmm. even recognize because they're, they're just little paper cuts. Right. And then they add up and you have this huge wound and you're like, why did we go in off in that direction? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that and that's, the, that's sort of the famous, like, you know blame game is like it's all the suits and it's true like that's an issue but like the suits want to have a popular thing that they can talk about at their parties like they don't want a bad show i'm not saying that i'm 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 indicting them i i but they're not writers yeah but i mean even when in you know i i have lots of you know producer meetings and and i see I see us doing it. I see myself doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's to your point. It's you become contemptuous of when you're like, well, I've already done. I've been living there for so long. Something grass is greener on the other side. And 
but it's not necessarily to your point. You got to keep coming back. Yeah, to, I mean, one, what of are the lines are, one of my lines in collaborations always is, and I probably said it to you, is like, are we making this better or are we just making it different? Yeah, that's really true. Very true. Often because, you're just making you know, it different. You know, and one of the things I've learned, like, as I've written for years is that, um, like, this is a record, although it's, I want it to be this lasting thing. It's also a record of who I was when I wrote it. Like, mm -hmm. and and if I go back and and rework it, like years later, like I'm denying that creative person who's who doesn't exist anymore. And that was the person who 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 went and worked on it every day, and not me. So, what do you think Lewis Carroll would say if he was here, given everything we've been doing? Um, with his story, I, don't, I I think he'd probably be like more interested in where mathematics has gone. Like, I, think, <laughs> I think that would be. His, I think he would be like. I think he would be like. But quantum fit. Quant. Wait. Yeah. It's like spooky. Like there's a thing, and it. If you look at. Wait. 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 Like I think that's what he lost. Yeah. And I, some of the imaginary number and some of this like amazing stuff that's happened in mathematics since because he was a mathematician. Yeah. So. I think I, you're I, right. I think he would say that his wonderland has, you know, survived for 157 years. I, I, let me go off and do something more interesting in mathematics. <laughs> That's a great answer. And, I mean, I think he would be, I think, I think he was a person who was very like, um, you know, amused by the world that he lived in. And I, I think that if he saw what we were doing, he, he would get a kick out of it. Would, you know, he, he, he wouldn't necessarily say that's what he would do. But he would say, well, it's for your world. I mean, we have to remember that he made massive changes between Alice Underground and Alice in Wonderland. He did, yeah. And um, so he was not adverse to like rethinking, you know, the Tea Party doesn't exist in that original manuscript. Mm, like, yes, correct. That's right. like, you know, so that's like an ama amazing thing that he leap of imagination. And I know that part of it was just he, like, there's like mundane levels where, children's stories usually have like dinner scenes you know have some kind of food scene um and it was didn't have one of those it's become like one of the most iconic elements and you would think like it would have been there right well david um this has been really a joy to talk about uh your work and our collaboration and Alice in pop culture. I think that listeners can see how we've collaborated for so long because, uh, you know, we just got through an hour and a few minutes without like <laughs> stopping <Yeah, laughs> with any issue. Yeah, with no issue. And we, we probably didn't even cover half the things. That yeah, we, could we, we absolutely haven't, but uh, hopefully they're interesting to the listeners. And uh, I will end with um, because, uh, of what you were saying about your imaginative, your childhood love of writing and continuing that into, into life that, uh, you know, it's something that, um, that, uh, Harry Miller, Harry Miller said, and that's imagination is the voice of daring. And, uh, I think that's been very true in your work and it's been uh, a pleasure to collaborate and to chat with you today. So, uh, thanks so much, my friend. And um, don't screw up that interview of mine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, brother. Bye-bye. You haven't even paid me from last time. I haven't watched Halo either. I'm going to summarize Halo Season 2 based on 
the Watching Now Halo podcast from Couch Soup. This is going to be fun. So Chief could be crazy. <laughs> Cortana's had a facelift. We're a bit mixed. Quan and Soren's story is really boring. Is is it over yet? Reach is f***ed. Reach for the stars. You all are gonna die. Spartans have a new leader called Ackerson. More like Dickerson. Apparently McKee is alive. She didn't die on screen, so she's probably not dead. Key's definitely not dying. Right, right, right. And the flood is coming. There's the water on this planet. What do I know? You should be listening to the Watching Now Halo podcast everywhere podcasts are available. Where's my money, Drew?